Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury and Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. Some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's uh, it's an amazing project to to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter. Learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry. Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of Internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Well, I'm sitting in the learning centre of the de Havilland Aircraft Museum at uh, London Colney with Ian Thirsk. Hi, Ian. Hi, Dave. Now, you've just given me a wonderful tour of uh, the museum and we've had a look at three mosquitoes all sitting together. Had you enjoyed it? <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, tell me, this, you know, this museum's got the prototype of the de Havilland mos- mosquito. Um, Absolutely amazing aircraft. Can you tell me a little bit of the background of that? It's a 
it's the jewel in our crown, really. I mean, it's such a it's a unique aeroplane, isn't it? Yeah. And to have the very first example of um, such a significant combat aircraft, and to have that still in possession today, and to be able to show it off to the public and to tell its story, I think that's just fantastic. And it's a huge privilege for all of us at the museum that have that chance to uh, to look after it and to share that story. Absolutely. Now, um, tell me that story that you mentioned about how it got to the museum, how it was saved. Well, basically, um, when it finished its flying career, and we think it stopped flying in about December 1943, and it passed on to the technical school by the Havilands, and they used it up here at Salisbury Hall for quite a long period. And then it passed to the public relations department, and they used to use it for uh, exhibitions. Um, What we call Farnborough today used to be at Radlett, used to be the SBAC Radlett display, and it was there in 46 and 47. To show off the company's wares, it was demonstrated with um, or displayed with examples of the various loads and equipment the Mosquito would carry. And shortly after that, uh, they were told to uh, dispose of it, to get rid of it. And as you well know, people in the aircraft industry are... um, pretty genuine enthusiasts as well and they were quite horrified at the prospect of this being done and the chap in charge was a chap called Bill Baird and he was the assistant public relations uh, manager at Hatfield to Martin Sharp who's a very well-known de Havilland man. Um, Bill was horrified at being told to burn the mosquito so he had it uh, moved around various sites in the UK that were de Havilland sites. I mean it was such a big company lots of places hide it away. And it was up at Chester for a period, it was at Pansanger, ended up at Hatfield. Um, the prototype Sea Vampire was also under his uh, his control, yeah. and the prototype uh, Sea Hornet. The Sea Hornet ended up being destroyed at Whitney, I believe, but the uh, Sea Vampire is now down at uh, Yeovilton. Right. And it was, of course, the first um, British aircraft jet aircraft to land on a, sh- a ship at sea, so that's got quite a bit of history too. I saw that last week, and that, that was landed on the carrier by uh, the famous Eric Winkle Brown. It, it most certainly was. Yeah. So that was a wonderful uh, piece to have, uh, to, you know, to maintain to this day. Yeah. But um, shortly afterwards, the mozzie was being moved around from place to place, and in the interim, a chap called uh, Walter Goldsmith, who'd been a Marine captain during the Second World War, he bought the house here, Salisbury Hall with the intention of restoring it. Yeah. Um, it was in fairly dilapidated condition by then. He didn't know any of its background, but um, walking through the various rooms, he discovered references to aeroplanes, and apparently the story goes there were drawings on the walls. I don't know how true that is. But um, his next-door neighbour at the time in Brookman's Park was uh, the son of a chap who worked at Havilland's. Yeah. And Walter mentioned this to him, and he said, oh, yes, well, that's where the, uh, the first Mosquito was actually designed and built. And Walter thought, oh, that's interesting because I'm restoring the house under a Ministry of Works grant. And that meant you need to have the house open to the public so many days per year. Right. So we thought, why well, I could do an exhibition on the house's history? Because obviously it goes back to the 17th century manor house. So yeah. many interesting figures. Charles II, Nigel Gresley designed the Mallard. So uh, he contacted the public relations department at Hatfield and um, got uh, through to Bill Baird, who said, well, yes, you know, we actually have the very first aeroplane still. You know, would you like to display that? Um, he was obviously quite surprised to hear that. Yep. But uh, de Havilland's weren't prepared to uh, put the funding up to build a hangar. They said, no, we, you know, we can't do that. But they suggested that um, Bill Baird write to all the uh, subcontractors who built mosquitoes during the war, which he did, and they all contributed a certain amount of money. And they put a hold of Robin Hanger, and the, the aeroplane came back here in 1958 and opened in um, May the 15th, 1959, as, uh, as, as the, what it was then, the Mosquito Museum. Fantastic. Wonderful thing. And the nice thing was um, when Bill Baird uh, was initially asked about um, bringing it back here, the news got through to his boss, who said to him, I understand you want to raise um, some money to uh, build a hangar to house the ashes of the aeroplane I told you to burn about four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a fairly um, whistle-stop version of what happened, but that's the basis behind it all. Right. But it, it's remarkable. It is. I mean, Bill was a remarkable character as well, and um, he was our museum chairman for uh, many, many years. And I never forget that the... Um, Fifth anniversary of the Mosquito's first flight, we had a very big day here. We rolled out the B-35, TA-634, IR-299 flew overhead. But um, Bill Baird gave a fantastic sort of uh, first-hand account of uh, saving W-4050 from a little hangar where she was kept. It was uh, a magic moment. A real gentleman. He's um, 
much missed. Yes, I imagine. Well, I mean, I think you mentioned that this is, was uh, the first um, private aviation museum in, in Britain. It was, yes. It, uh, when it opened its doors and yeah, May the 15th, 1959, it was the first um, private museum, to be honest with you, and it's, uh, which is quite something, I think. It, it is. Uh, and so it's been continually going now for, what's that? Come up. Um, yeah, opened in 59, so it's been going now for what, getting on for 60, 64 years really, Okay, which is, um, which is pretty good. And it's expanded enormously in that time. I mean, it was initially just a prototype mosquito, but uh, over time more aircraft were, uh, were added. We had a Venom NF3 and a Vampire T11. And then in um, 1970, we received the Mosquito TT35 uh, TA634, which came down from Speak, and it was presented by the uh, Corporation Liverpool. We had it outside for 10 years, and the weather, the English climate, was um, not very kind to it, so we had a massive appeal to raise a new hangar to, uh, to save and to house it, and that hangar roof was finished in about 1980, and we rolled her under cover in October 1980. Wow. And began the restoration to how you see her today, really. Yeah, uh, well, it looks fantastic. I mean, uh, you were saying that it needs a repaint, but it, it looks like an aircraft on the line, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it still looks pretty good, but yeah. um, we finished the major part of that restoration um, over thirty years ago now. So yeah. she needs a bit of a tidy up yeah. and to install equipment that um, wasn't done the first time round. But uh, our main concern then was to really conserve the airframe and make sure that that was going to be um, was going to be saved. Yeah. And then we were diverted after that by obviously the um, the need to uh, conserve the prototype mosquito, which is uh, obviously our, our number one priority. Yeah, and the conservation of that is fantastic. I mean, also the, the history of that particular aircraft is really interesting. You would show me all the different sort of modifications it had from the start, uh, the redesign of the the uh, back of the... the engine nasals and yeah um it's you wouldn't know that unless you had the prototype i guess like that sort you of thing would be lost well it was the uh the principal experimental mosquito to evaluate the basic design really mm. i mean it looks like a bomber version it looks like a pr version but it's not it was basically just an airframe just to ensure that the aerodynamics were sound yeah. and that um it was used for development really right the way through but it has Several unique features that we looked at this morning. It's got the uh, shorter wingspan, 52 yep. feet, 5 inch wingspan. The leading edge slats, which were not required in the end, obviously. Right. Uh, you saw all the modifications that were done to uh, lengthen the engine nacelles to um, get rid of the tail buffeting issues. Mm. It carried a mock-up gun turret at one point. Yeah. I mean, it did so many things. Yeah. And, of course, as we mentioned as well, it was... Um, became the test aircraft for the, it pioneered the installation of the two-stage Merlin, the Merlin 61, right. which obviously was in the Mark 9 Spitfire. Yeah. And that uh, increased altitude performance and maximum speed by quite a margin. And uh, W4050 in Merlin 61 form and later Merlin 77 recorded the highest level speed of any, any Mosquito in level flight. It was about 439 mile an hour, which is... Um, not bad going for the very first aeroplane. Yeah, you should take it to Reno. <laughs> <laughs> we probably should. <laughs> so um, can you just explain for the listeners about those slats? Because that was an interesting story. Yeah, when the Mosquito was designed, um, it was the highest performance aeroplane the company had ever ever worked on. Mm. Um, the Albatross airliner did 200 mile an hour. The Mosquito was going to do practically double that. Yeah. There were concerns about the stall behaviour. How would it behave? Would it be vicious? They were really an insurance against problems with that. But of course, in the end, the behaviour turned out to be absolutely benign. The aeroplane was not a problem at all, really, yeah. and was quite, you could easily handle it. So um, they were locked in position and just fabriced over. So no other mosquito had them. We've never found any official reports of trials with those flat with those uh, with those slots. We know they were locks in position for the very first flight, oh, right. but um, we do know that obviously they never appeared in any other production aeroplane. Okay. They're quite um, labour intensive to manufacture and they're quite heavy as well, so that would have slowed up production a fair bit. Yeah, but they're a unique feature. Yeah, and I like the way that you've got one open and one closed, just so you can see both positions. Yeah, well, I said earlier on, we've tried to. Uh, 
represent the aeroplane as it was towards the end of its flying career. So when it made its last flight, we think in about December 43. Um, so strictly speaking, it shouldn't have, you shouldn't be able to see those slats, but because they're a unique feature, we thought it was, they should really be shown to the public. So that's why we left them uh, one side open, the other side's closed. We rotate them really. Yeah. Um, now the other mosquito that you've got here, the FB6, which is being worked on at the moment, um, that's got an interesting international history. Oh, it has. That I would say that that one is probably the museum's greatest achievement in terms of mosquito sort of uh, restoration and conservation. It's the only example of the FB6 left in Europe, and of course mm -hmm. the FB6 was the most widely produced example of the mosquito, or variant of the mosquito. Yeah. Of course, most of the survivors now are in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, but that particular aircraft, we acquired it in 1978 um, from Holland, and it was um, built, it's TA-122 and FB-6 built at Hatfield in about March 45. Mm -hmm. And it was delivered to uh, 605 Squadron in, um, in Belgium in about April 45. And it flew one operation during the war with uh, Wing Commander Angus Horn, who was 605 Squadron's uh, commanding officer. And after the war, it remained in Germany as part of the British forces of occupation. And to cut a long story short, it was uh, retired in, uh, in 1950 one on the strength of four squadron, which 605 had become, yep. and um, was bought by the, uh, the Dutch Air Force to be used as an instructional airframe. And they chopped the wings off either side of the fuselage and uh, chopped the tailplane in half and cut holes in it to show the students how the aircraft was manufactured. Right. Um, it ended up in the Dutch Air Force Museum store, and in 1978, we managed to do a deal with them to acquire it for the museum. As we mentioned earlier on, I don't think that kind of thing had happened today, because no. obviously <laughs> you'd be talking uh, vast sums of money. But um, Walter Goldsmith, of course, who we mentioned earlier on, who owned the house, he was also a painter, and he did a painting of the Dutch Air Force's founder. Yeah. In exchange for that, we were uh, given the fuselage of TA-122. Amazing. Which was fantastic, really. Yeah. And it was on display here just as a fuselage for many, many years. But we kept thinking, we need to get a wing for it and make this aeroplane complete. And Stuart Howe, who's a, a name that doesn't really get mentioned much these days, but he did a tremendous amount for this museum in the early days. Yeah. And he really was the man who uh, managed to acquire 122 for us. But uh, Stuart heard from Rob's Lampler that there was some mosquito remains in Israel on a kibbutz. And uh, Stuart went out to check them. Sure enough, there was. There was a mosquito wing there. The fuselage had rotted away. Yep. We believe it was from a sea mosquito, an early production sea mosquito with the uh, fixed rather than folding wings. TW233, we think it was. Okay. Although we found parts from about 10 different other mosquitoes on it. But um, basically, LL threw it back for us, free of charge, yep. as a publicity stunt back in 1980. And it took us 25 years, but we restored it, rebuilt it, and we put it back onto the wing. But over that period, we've acquired parts from uh, New Zealand, undercarriage from New Zealand, yep. wingtips from Australia, very early wingtips from an FB-40. We've got parts from Canada, the crew door came from Canada, parts from Turkey, obviously I mentioned Israel earlier on. It's been a really international affair, and yeah. she's now reaching the uh, the end of that restoration process. I mean, she looks like a complete aeroplane again. Absolutely. It looks fantastic. You've... Um at the moment, uh, visiting today, we've got a bit of a, a masking paper on it because it's about to have its final Yeah, we, we, we repainted the fuselage and the wing probably about um, 10 years ago now. But obviously we've been adding parts to that since. And we've added the undercarriage nacelles, we've added the cowlings, we've added the rest of the tailplane. That was rebuilt from scratch as well. Yeah. And all these parts need to be obviously painted up as well. So we've been preparing all of those surfaces to blow them back in again, which has been done, yeah, should be done over the next month or so. Great. Excellent. So um, tell me about your uh, involvement with the museum here and how did you get involved? Um, God, it goes back a long way, really. Uh, my father worked for de Havilland's at Hatfield, so I grew up with stories of aeroplanes in de Havilland's. Yep. And, um, we were on the flight path to Hatfield, so we were getting tridents over all the time and 125s. And of course, the company owned a Mosquito then, the T3RR299, yep. which they bought in 1963. And it would regularly fly over the house and we'd go down to watch it at the field open days. And it became, it just really inspired me. And it's something that's never, 
I've never really grown away from. Right. And I got really interested in the mosquito then. This is about 1977, I suppose. And started as a volunteer and I was about 15, 16. Yep. And I've been here ever since. I'm 62 now. So <laughs> a little bit scary, but it's just something that I really enjoy. And um, I think what I love about it most is that we're all passionate about the mosquito, but we just love to conserve and restore and and share the aeroplane story to visitors and get them interested in the aeroplane and really show it off. And yeah. uh, I find that that is what drives me at the end of the day. Yeah. And your work here has been as a volunteer, but you actually worked in the industry of preserving aircraft as well. I did. I was in the um, my career. I worked for the uh, Royal Air Force Museum at Hendon, yeah. and I was with them for 32 years. Yeah. Uh, my last uh, appointment there was as head of collections and research, so I was responsible for all the um, collections in the museum, obviously with a big emphasis on the uh, on the aircraft and large three or the object collection, yeah. which is my passion, obviously, my interest. And that was um, a dream come true. I never thought I'd ever do anything like that when I was a kid. I'd go to Hendon when I was about five or six and walk around those hallowed halls and look at everything and never dreamt in a million years that I one day would be responsible for all that. Yeah. And I was, and it was uh, a really kind of humbling experience, but it was um, it was fantastic. And uh, I had an opportunity to see and do so many interesting projects while I was doing that job and to collect so many significant aircraft for the you know, the RAF's um, history and collection. It was, uh, it was, it was fantastic. And of course, we are going to go to Hendon together later, later in my tour, and we'll have another episode on that. But we will. Uh, um, just getting back to this museum, looking around, uh, apart from the other, the, the, the three mosquitoes, there's a there's a number of other de Havilland aircraft here. So, oh, there is. We 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 can't have an example of every de Havilland aeroplane ever made, but we've managed to obtain examples of very significant types. Yeah. And I think after the prototype mosquito, our most significant aircraft is the fuselage of the Air France uh, Comet 1 FB yep. GNX. That was the, um, I believe it was the first of three for Air France. And it was grounded, obviously, when the Comet disasters occurred. Right. Um, it's the last remaining example now with the uh, with the square windows and ADF cutouts, etc. So it's very, very significant in that respect. And that really does um, a huge part of the Havilland story, a very tragic one as well. But nevertheless, it's something which occurred in the company's lifetime. Yeah. We have examples of the um, the tiger moth, obviously, the hornet moth. We have the Sierra C24 Autogyro, a one-off experimental uh, type that was built in the 30s. We have the de Havilland Dove, of course, which yep. is another huge export success, yep. as does the vampire, yep. the sea venom, the, 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 the heron. It was always called, um, it was designed by W.B. Tamblin, who was also on the Mosquito team, and uh, apparently it was called Tam's Tram, which kind of makes so, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite a nice little um, appellation for it, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Um, but we also, we preserve the history of the Hatfield site, and um, we've got a 146 here as well, because the 146 followed with the Havilland type numbers, so, you know, yep. Trident was DH121, the... 146 follows that to have a lineage number, really. Yep. So we're all about preserving the company's history and the people, of course, that work for the company. That is our prime role. And we are now the... We represent the company, really, because obviously the um, aerodrome at Hatfield was closed down many, many years ago and built upon. Yep. Um, they do try to honour the heritage because many of the roadways are named after um, to Havilland people. You've got Mosquito Way, Chipmunk Chase, Clarkson Courts and Bishop Square, all these kind of things. Yep. But we are really representing to Havilland, this, the last parts of to Havilland. Uh, and it's such a significant uh, manufacturer of aircraft in New Zealand history, uh, and as well as British and, you know... Go right back to when our Air Force started 100 years ago. Uh, we had DH-4s and DH-9s and DH-50s. Absolutely. And and then, of course, our first ever airliner was a, um, a DH-83 Fox Moth. Uh, the Tiger Moths were very significant in World War II uh, being built in New Zealand. The only aircraft built in New Zealand until we started building uh, air tourers and air trainers. Um you know, years and years later. Uh, then you've got also uh, the vampires, the Devons. Uh, I mean, there's so there's so many de Havilland types right through to yeah. uh, the the uh, 146, which ends uh, New Zealand flew. Yeah. You know, and so the intrinsic to, to New Zealand history, really, absolutely isn't it? aviation history. Yeah, absolutely, and the the history of New Zealand aviation and 
the history of de Havilland go side by side. They certainly do. And I've also got to say that obviously in recent years, I mean, New Zealand have been the world leaders, I think, in terms of restoration. Yeah. And, you know, I can't not mention today the work of obviously Glyn Powell and, and Aspects. Yeah. I mean, to bring the mosquito essentially back from the dead is... Uh, well, it's just a fantastic achievement. Absolutely. And we have a really good relationship with, uh, obviously, Warren and the guys at Aspects. I mean, yeah. they do an amazing job. And it's, um, well, I take my hat off to the New Zealanders. I mean, the dedication and the um, innovation, it's just absolutely mind-numbing, really. Yeah, uh, I 100% agree there. Um, there's no one else in the world that's doing stuff like Aspects and, and what Glyn did. Glyn's grandson's taken over Glyn's business and... There's still mosquitoes getting built in New Zealand. So there is. I mean, when, rebuilt, I should say. <laughs> absolutely. When Glenn first started, he came down to see us, and we followed him all the way through that journey, really. And uh, you know, everyone thought he, he's mad. Yeah. And he was a bit. He had to be, but uh, he did it. And exactly. uh, well, it's just I take my hat off to them. I really do. Yeah. And obviously, um, we're looking forward to the Big and Hill mosquito being done. Yeah. It should be here in 2026, all being well. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic achievement. And, of course, um, aside from the mosquitoes, there's other uh, uh, de Havilland types that have been restored for the world uh, in New Zealand too. We've had, um, you know, Mandeville, um, yeah. Croydon Aircraft Croydon Company. Company yeah. uh, they've turned out lots of tiger moths and fox moths and all sorts of interesting things. Uh, there's been rep uh, dragon rapides restored in New Zealand that have gone overseas and... Yeah, there's and one recently too, wasn't there? Yeah, Warren's done, so, exactly. Uh, yeah, one of our ex Air Force ones has been redone by Warren and the team, and that's gone off to the states. So, yeah, it's a pretty special company for New Zealand. Absolutely right. You have the Dragonfly, don't you, as well? Up, it's, uh, we do. One of two flying in the world. A very, very special aeroplane. Yeah, I love that aircraft. I love oh, them both. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're gorgeous things, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. Um, with this museum. Um, what are the stories of veterans that you've met who've come in here and, you know, that flew mosquitoes or flew some of the other aircraft? What, what are the memories that you have? We're, we always are over the moon when we hear a veteran will be coming up yeah. and do our very best to record all their stories and make sure that we can keep them for posterity. And we, yeah, we recently had Des Curtis up here, I say, and George Dunn yeah. as part of a film that's being produced at the moment for, on the mosquito. Yeah. And to have to savour that moment, it was in this very room where we are now, we just sat there and had a chat to Des Curtis about 618 Squadron and anti-shipping strikes and flying the Mosquito Mark 18. Yeah. Uh, and it's unreal, really. And we had Colin Bell here um, last year. Yeah. I think he's 101 now. Yeah. And, of course, he flew uh, Canadian B-20s with um, 608 Squadron over at, uh, I think it was at Downham Market. And... He is just an inspiration. I mean, he's absolutely phenomenal for his uh, for his age. Yeah. He was walking around the floor downstairs just talking to visitors, All right. just saying to them, I used to fly these, you know, and they're looking, <laughs> really? And But so, um, Colin is so sharp, of course, isn't he? I mean, he's all there. Yeah. And uh, he's really bringing those stories to life. And, of course, just now, as you saw, a lady just came in with... Um, her father's logbook, yeah. a chap who flew uh, B-16s with the 128 Squadron of the uh, Light Knight Striking Force. I mean, that's just such a, that's just gold dust, really. Absolutely. I anyone out there that uh, is listening to this who might have logbooks or photographs uh, of mosquitoes, um, or involving mosquitoes, um, Ian, I'd love to hear. We would love to hear from me, yes, please. You know, we, we're here to tell the de Havilland story and those that were involved with the products that the company made. And anything that will perpetuate that memory and give us a chance to spread it wider is always appreciated. You know, we have a fantastic volunteer team here, really. I mean, we are made up. We have about two paid staff, but the rest of us are volunteers. Yeah. And everyone is passionate. And hopefully you've seen today, very enthusiastic. Very, yeah. And it's just uh, everyone regards it, I think, as a wonderful privilege to be able to share their story and to do something to uh, endure it, really, and to make it continue. And um, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning, to be honest. I just find it, it just drives you. I love it. Uh, as someone who uh, has always wanted to come to this museum, it is an absolute privilege to be able to stand there and look at the prototype mosquito and then look around and there's two more mosquitoes sitting there. You've got a horse there too, which... We do, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's uh, people don't realise that um, de Havilland had the design centre here for quite a long time. 
and the first designs for the vampire fighter were done up here when it was being called the spider crab in those days. <laughs> right. But the Airspeed company were also part of de Havilland. And the Horser, the first four Horsers were actually uh, designed and constructed here and taken away for flight testing. Yeah. Hence the reason why you saw that one on display just now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, lots of things happened up at this particular site. Yeah. Uh, well, in fact, also you can look out on the field where that famously the mosquitoes prototype took off. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the, the very first prototype went out by road to Hatfield and made its first flight in November 40. But the uh, very first fighter prototype mosquito, W4052, that flew out of the uh, the field at the back. I showed you as you as you walked in. Yeah. And that was brilliant idea. It was, you could say it was almost a little bit foolhardy, but um, it saved a month in dismantling and reassembly. Yeah. And the story goes that... Um, Fred Plum, who was the works manager here, works foreman, he had said to Jeffrey de Havilland Jr., just jokingly, well, you know, why don't you fly it out? And um, Jeffrey said, well, you know, I'll do it, but uh, you're coming with me. And he said, well, I bet you a pound you won't do it. And he said, well, so be it. And they did it. And uh, it was May the 15th, 1941. And it, well, it was wartime, wasn't it? You did things, but you just can't imagine that kind of thing going on now. No. And they flew two more mosquitoes out from the back as well. They flew the first turret fighter prototype, W4053 and W4073, which was um, another turret fighter that had a mock-up turret on the back. They flew out in uh, later in 1941. So, you know, it's an incredible story, really, isn't it? It also almost sounds romantic building this uh, aeroplane in the grounds of a country house. Yeah, it But, does. you know, it was all done purely for, uh, for practical reasons, obviously. It was a private project, the design, wasn't it? It wasn't actually commissioned by... It was a private project, essentially, yes. Yeah. Um, it was championed by um, Sir Wilfred Freeman at the Air Ministry and became known as Freeman's Folly, as I'm sure you've read before. Yeah. But the it was proposed initially as a high-speed unarmed bomber, obviously relying purely on its um, performance for defence. And you can kind of understand to a degree why the Air Ministry might have been a little bit sceptical about that. But the role which really got it through was photo reconnaissance because they were looking desperately for a high-performance PR aeroplane at that period. Yeah. And in many ways, that role is the one that got it ordered. But obviously, when it first flew, it um, really proved itself performance-wise. But um, yeah, there was a fair bit of uh, adversity to the project initially. Incredible that it turned out to be one of the greatest um, aircraft of the war. I mean, just look at the roles. It became a, a day bomber, a night bomber, a um, target marker, a uh, fighter. Uh, yeah. You know, um, you've got the photographic role. You've got transport role with the yeah. uh, BOAC. BOAC, yeah, um, they flew them for a period. Yeah, it's, it's the the original multi-role aircraft. Really, it was, it? it was a jack of all trades, but it was really the master of each of them, when you think about yeah. it. Yeah. And it did each part of that role so very, very well. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fastest operational airplane in the world, really, I guess, for about three years of the war, until the German jets and the um, began to overtake them performance-wise in the 190s. Yeah. But uh, it... Yeah, it did it incredibly well, didn't it? As we were mentioning earlier on, the um, high-flying bombers with the two-stage Merlin engines, they were um, at incredibly low loss rate. I think it's about 0.03%, yeah. whereas the fighter bombers are doing it at a much more sort of low level, and that is more risk-averse, and obviously yeah. you get uh, higher casualties. But it did each role incredibly well, I think. It really did set the pattern for future years, I think. Yeah, And just to um, go back to the New Zealand story, um, the... New Zealand, New Zealand had four squadrons of uh, mm. uh, of mosquitoes. We had four eight seven squadron, which was a day bomber, mainly day bomber. I think they did a bit of night bombing, yep. um, and they were very famous for the Amion raid and they the Gestapo two group one forty wing stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. The, the Gestapo headquarters and everything, and uh, then there was four eight eight squadron, which was a night fighter um, defensive squadron in, in yep. Britain, and eventually they moved across to. Europe uh, after the invasion and we're doing night fighter work there and then we've got 489 squadron who had mosquitoes replace their bow fighters near the end of the war and they were anti-shipping role so yeah. there's another role that absolutely um, you know and that's a, a, a remarkable sort of uh, role again the coastal command thing uh, and then of course after the war we had them on 75 squadron as well and um, those were uh 
fighter bombers on, yeah. on Sydney yeah. Fire Squadron. So, yeah, we had all the you had range. That. You <laughs> certainly did, yeah. They equipped, um, was it Was it about 80, I think, was it? Sixes came out. We, yeah, yeah we purchased, from New Zealand as well. purchased, purchased 80. Australia. Um, yeah, that's right. We pur- purchased the 80, and, um, but we only actually used about 20 of them, and the rest yeah. all sat in hangars. And, all stored away, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, and then they got sold off and burnt, uh, cut up. Oh, horrible to think about but then if it wasn't for that then some of those ones that were on farms that ended up getting picked up by the likes of uh, John Smith and uh, uh, Glenn Powell that exist now yeah we we probably wouldn't have had them so um, yeah it's uh, and we should we should mention the John Smith one as well because that's oh, absolutely that's quite a remarkable story it's the holy grail that that particular example isn't it yeah. And the work that's been done on it, a marker, is absolutely outstanding, isn't it? It is. I mean, we'd always uh, dreamt of seeing that. Some of our guys had been out there many years ago and met John Smith and been had the privilege of seeing it. Yeah. But you know, we always knew. It. I never saw it, but we always knew it was there. And it was, you know, the most complete FB6 anywhere in the world, isn't it? Yeah. And to know now that it, it is on display to the public and it's being engine run. I mean, John Smith would have been absolutely delighted, wouldn't he? I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. Um, the fact that he bought the airframe, cut it up, put it on a truck, transported well, actually, not much of a truck, it was a small truck, transported it right across uh, from Blenheim to Mapur, um, then somehow reconstructed it in such a way that both the fuselage and the wings had been cut. Absolutely. But, but you just can't even really notice unless you have a really good no, look. I mean, the repair that he did was, was absolutely outstanding, wasn't it? Absolutely. And then he got the engines running on it, and he used to run the engines, and then he built a shed around it, but it still had the engines poking out, so he could still run it occasionally. Yeah. And then he built the rest of the shed eventually and, and closed it in out of the weather and painted it uh, with the, the white paint that yes, y- was yeah, famous. Yes, I saw photographs of it with that, yeah, when uh, it was outside. Yeah, and, and that white paint he put um, anti... Um, antifungal stuff. Antifungal it? stuff in it so that the wood wouldn't get rotten. I mean, it's so clever. Quite forward thinking, really, wasn't it? Absolutely. All about the preservation and never never thinking that he'd do anything himself, I don't think. But what actually happened was his forward thinking meant that... Yeah, his foresight has yeah. benefited future generations, really, hasn't it? Absolutely. And then along comes, well, after he'd died, along comes uh, the team from Amarca and they pull it out of the shed and they take it to Amarca and led by Al Marshall and, and Gavin Conroy, they've they've put it back together um, and got it running uh, it's <laughs> just repainted it. Exactly. It's yeah. absolutely phenomenal, isn't it? And shares the hangar with Bill Reed's Anson, doesn't it? Uh, well, it's now well, next door. Do. Yeah, it used to, yeah, when it was being restored. And um, you can now see it in the museum, the uh, Aviation Heritage Centre, and it just looks great under the lights. It really does. And, and back in April, um, it was pulled out for the air show and they were, ran the engines, I think, four or five times a day sort of thing. Um, and you'd always get a big crowd around it. And each time they had done a, a, an auction or, or a raffle or something like that, and uh, a lucky winner would get into the second seat so he could be in the well, he or she could be in the cockpit. Um, you know, amazing. And they raised some good money to keep it, yeah. you know, res- uh, preserved. So. It certainly benefits the whole place, isn't it, really, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. But, yeah, he really was a visionary in many ways, wasn't he? Absolutely. I, I think I, I'll put it down to John Smith as the visionary and then there's the genius of Al Marshall who oh, led the team to put it back together. Al has been absolutely fantastic. As yeah. I say, we're really grateful to him too because we've had occasions to ask him for photos or detail when we're doing our Mark Six, and we get it within about... Two or three hours. I mean, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I don't think he ever sleeps. But, I don't think uh, he does either. <laughs> but no, he's a fantastic team. They really are. Yeah. One day we hope to meet them all when we come out. But yeah. uh, it would be brilliant. Yeah, and so um, now the mosquito world has changed a bit. Where there are uh, four possible flyers. I mean, there's, they're not all flying all the time, but there's there's four that are capable of flying right now, and there's two more being done at Auckland. There are indeed. Um, and so. You know, only 10 years ago, or just over 10 years ago, there were none flying in the world. None whatsoever. And I don't think many people would have thought that there'd no. be a resurgence. It's quite amazing. It is fantastic, really. That enabler work that's been done in New yeah. Zealand is just uh, its phenomenal. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mosquitoes are just an amazing aircraft. I really, I really think so. I'm slightly biased, but yeah, I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> 
what would you say to people who are thinking about coming to the museum? Um, what's the, their best, or to find out more about the museum? Um, look on the website first, or we find out our opening times. But um, there's so much to do here. Uh, we, we try to. Uh, aim not just at the aviation enthusiasts, but we need to see a wider audience that don't necessarily know anything about the subjects and try and inspire and interest them. So we have guided tours of the site, we have opportunities to get involved with activities, we do lots of children's activities as well, yeah. educational things. But um, yeah, it, it's a wide remit of things that go on here and there's, there's something for everybody really. You've got this learning centre here now that's uh, we have, part of yeah. a recent addition to the... Yes, that's really important because the education side of it obviously is very is a, is a huge part really. So we can use this for instructing school groups for various activities. That's always really helpful. And use it for uh, other purposes too, education purposes. Yeah. And of course you can hold events here, you can rent out the space. We can. I mean, it's the development, the lottery money which we received and the new, the new hangar which has the comet in it now a mezzanine area there so we can have events and we can have corporate hire days as well to bring some revenue in to sustain the museum and that's really important I think and we've also managed to um, up the game in terms of uh, professional standards of uh, collections management and uh, interpretation and display. We are an accredited museum so um, you know we are approved by the Arts Council and uh, we're trying to grow our professionalism in all areas of that really to be honest with you. And managing the volunteers too, because we've got a huge resource of volunteers with various skills and trying to apply them where they're best, uh, they're best needed, really. Right. And with the future uh, going forward, um, we were talking earlier uh, on the way here that about, you know, kids don't really understand uh, the whole aviation hub of Hatfield because it's gone now. And That's right. And, and you know, the education of younger people... They don't, they don't really get into the airfix models and learn that way anymore or see all the old war film, films like, you know, when I was a kid. Exactly. Our generation grew up, didn't they, with mm. uh, with those stories. Yeah. Because, and we had our granddads around. Um, we and, did, and most of the family members and most people that you met or you worked with had an RAF connection yeah. or, a, or, in this case, to Haviland connection because yeah. this was the biggest employer in this area. But, of course, the factory's now been closed for 20-odd years. And um, a new generation have come up who never actually knew anything at all about the site as a yeah. um, as a factory. Yeah. As an example, um, the original admin building, which for the for the company, the Art Deco building, is still here. It's uh, it's a um, police station now okay. in Hatfield. Yeah. It's been repurposed, but the building still exists. And they've produced a little uh, museum downstairs. They call it the Bunker Museum. It's for local schools to come in and learn about Hatfield site and its heritage. And I was asked to help with that, which which was great fun. And we had a soft opening of that last year and um, brought some youngsters in and even some younger people that work within the police building at Hatfield. Yeah. And they came in and they were saying, well, we didn't know there was an airfield even here. Right. Really? What went on? And you think, I must be getting old. Yeah. But it, it's quite, that's where, that's where you are now. You're at now, really. You need to try and sort of educate these, these people and make them understand and Make them proud of their heritage, really. Yeah, I mean, Hatfield, the home of the world's first jet airliner. I mean, that's one of the things that we always shout about. Yeah, and definitely. the uh, we have world-beating things that went on there, but um, trying to get that across to the new generation. But of course, they have no knowledge of the subject or interest in it. You could say to a degree, and um, you need to attract them because as we diehards enthusiasts, as we get older and we disappear. You know, someone's got to fill that void, haven't they? Yeah. And the museum needs to keep going. So you must try and um, invite and bring in new audiences to the site and get them interested. Yeah. And if it means doing different activities, we had a um, we had a swing band event here about two weeks ago. Right. We rolled the FB6 Mosquito out and we used the hangar area as a, for the bands and for the singers. And that was a fantastic event. It was very, very good. It raised money for the museum. But the great thing was that it brought a new audience in that wouldn't normally come here. Right. And talking to them, they really enjoyed it. We had no idea that you were even here. And we're going to tell our friends about this. They'll come back. That's the kind of thing that you need to be doing, really, trying to spread the word wider now. Exactly, yeah. And as we talked earlier on as well, trying to get younger people interested in it all um, on the mosquito team I have now I mean the average age of the guys on that must be about 70 74 right. um, we've got a couple of youngsters come in recently and it's really important to have that because they are our future really yeah so we're just trying to 
almost put them through an apprenticeship, if you wish, to get to know the aeroplane and to learn the activities they need to do and the techniques and the uh, processes that are involved. But they will continue to lead all this, I hope. That's yeah. the plan. Yeah. And it really is important. It does work because um, one of our chaps, a young fellow called Matt, he's recently joined uh, BAE Systems up at Bruff right. as an apprentice. And um, he's nuts about aviation and aeroplanes. But the fact that he was a volunteer here and was working on a mosquito and had that interest really impressed the uh, interview panel up there apparently because it showed that he would go the extra mile to uh, find out more and to be keen really Excellent. and I think that helps a lot and I when I was younger coming here I was uh, helped and inspired by lots of the older ones here yeah. and that led me to want to take up a career in museums so you know it, it really helped me in my professional career so I can sort of put something back now, so to speak, then it feels like you're doing something worthwhile. Excellent, excellent. Well, one other thing that comes to mind when I hear about Hatfield Airfield is this is the site where they made Band of Brothers, isn't it? Yes, they produced the, um, a lot of the filming of Band of Brothers was actually done on the aerodrome site yeah. and Saving Private Ryan, that was oh, done right. there as well. Yeah. I used to live opposite then uh, in some flats opposite the, uh, the old admin building area. And as a local resident, we were allowed to uh, go in and see the film set. Okay. And I used to go in quite a lot because our dove, that's on display outside now, that used to be outside at Hatfield. And I'd call in every week to make sure it was okay. Yeah. And it was fantastic because you were literally, quite literally, transported back in time to a village in France in 1944. Wow. It was that spectacular. You walked through bomb buildings, you walked over a bridge, over a river. Yeah. Went around the corner, there were lots of Waco Hadrian gliders or in the fields, there was one crashed into a tree. It was just absolutely incredible. I mean, the work these guys do is, is absolutely phenomenal. They were building um, replica tanks and the old aircraft factory side of it, producing replica uniforms. We had um, two Mustangs flying over for about two hours one morning. There was that strafing scene at the end. There was a church tower there, the one that you see in the uh, Saving Private Ryan. That yep. was there for months and months and months. Okay. Quite phenomenal. But yes, that was done there, and so was Band of Brothers. Lots of work was done on that site before it became, um, obviously, the industrial estate and the housing estate that it is now. Wow. I mean, that that was a historic moment in itself, saving Private Ryan. Absolutely. really sort of brought back the whole idea of really good movies about the war. And uh, I think that's inspired probably two generations. I think it has. Yeah. It was a really good anti-war movie, wasn't it? It, it was. told it exactly as it was. There yeah. was no grammar involved in it at all. Exactly. And Band of Brothers is just a seminal series. It's just incredible. Yeah, they've gone so far with those, I think. They're really, really good. Yeah. But um, So that was a fringe benefit to living in Hatfield at that time. That's been back in the 90s, actually. Yes, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Would have been, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> um, okay, well... All I can say is you must come and see this museum. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Ian. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.